Bonjour, my friend, and welcome to the Come to Friends with Me podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Gauthier, talking to you from Normandy in France. I'm so glad we're meeting like this. I created this podcast to connect with you, my beloved American friend, because I miss you. On this first episode, I will be taking you to one of the first things that comes to mind when you think about French architecture, a castle. Then we'll talk about one of my all-time favorite dishes, crepes. And finally, we'll make space for gratitude. Are you ready? Let's get this show on the road. So, a little while back, I spent a few days in the Loire Valley. It's a region kind of in the upper middle of France, about two hours southwest of Paris. One of the main attractions in the Loire Valley is the castles. There are actually several hundreds of them sprinkled all along the Loire River. During my latest trip, I visited the Château de Talcy. Just saying that sounds fancy, right? Talcy is actually quite a tiny place. Only about 250 people live there. Its castle is still standing strong though. The area is rural, you will see endless fields of wheat, rapeseed and lupin. Beets and potatoes are also grown there. In Talcy, that's T-A-L-C-Y, the château originated as a fortification in the 13th century and gradually developed as a more and more imposing building. It was bought in 1466 by a Parisian lawyer, Pierre Simon, who built the central tower. Then Salviati, a banker from Florence, Italy, purchased it in the early 1500s. He had a French wife named Françoise. In 1545, the French poet Pierre de Ronsard fell in love with Salviati's daughter, Cassandre, at a ball in nearby Blois. They were not allowed to marry because Ronsard was not considered a suitable match. He dedicated some of the best-known French sonnets to her. Various families owned the castle over the centuries, and it underwent a slew of transformations and renovations. It finally fell under state ownership in 1933. Like many buildings with such a long history, the architecture of the Talcy Castle has evolved over the years. The central square tower does remain from the 1480 building. Fortifications were added in the 1520s. Later, two wings were built on either side of the tower. The east wing actually extends to meet the adjacent village church. They had an opening from the upper floor of the castle onto the church. That way they could attend the service without mixing up with the general population, you know? That opening is now closed up. The courtyard contains a covered well and is surrounded by barns and outbuildings, among which a large circular dovecote. One of the barns still contains a wine press from 1808. At the back of the castle, about 15 acres of grounds are divided into lawns, a vegetable garden, and a fruit orchard. The castle is still furnished as if a family lived there, and you can explore the rooms, imagining what it would be like to call the space home. There are luxurious fabrics everywhere, rich velvets and taffetas, canopy beds and tapestries furnish the bedrooms, as well as little antique desks in precious woods. 
In the dining room, the table is set as if they were waiting for us to arrive, with silver and crystals. Everywhere there are chandeliers, paintings, vases, clocks, books, even stuffed animals. And I'm not talking about the teddy bear kind. If you are ever in a neighborhood, definitely drop by Talsi and visit the castle and its grounds. The 6 euros are worth it and include a guided tour if you are there at the right time of day. Don't miss the 16th century church next door with its vaulted wooden ceiling. In the meantime, I put some pictures and videos on my website. You'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. As we leave Talsi, here's one of the poems that Ronsard wrote to his beloved Cassandre. It's called Mignonne allons voir si la rose, which means pretty one, let's go see if the rose. Mignonne allons voir si la rose qui ce matin avait éclose sa robe de pourpre au soleil a point perdu cette vesprée, les plis de sa robe pourprée, et son teint au vôtre pareil. Las, voyez comme en peu d'espace, mignonne, elle a dessus la place. Las, las, ses beautés les séchoirs. Oh, vraiment, marâtre nature, puisqu'une telle fleur ne dure que du matin jusqu'au soir. Donc, si vous me croyez, mignonne, tandis que votre âge fleuronne, en sa plus verte nouveauté, cueillez, cueillez votre jeunesse, comme à cette fleur la vieillesse fera ternir votre beauté. That was pretty romantic, right? Well, for a change of pace, how about we talk about food, and specifically crepes? I think if I were stranded on a desert island and I could have only one dish for the foreseeable future, I would choose crepes. They're easy, versatile, and just plain delicious, so what's not to like, right? For a while, when I was a teenager, it became a tradition in my family that I would make crepes on Sunday evenings. I would make a stack of them, and then everybody would help themselves and put whatever they wanted on them. I'm pretty sure most cultures have an equivalent dish. In the UK and the US, we have pancakes, of course, then tortillas in Mexico, injeras in Ethiopia, blinis in Russia. Well, the list goes on, but you get my drift. What all those have in common is that they're easy to make once you get the hang of it, with few cheap ingredients. And of course, they are delicious. To make crepes, you just need flour, eggs and milk, and butter to cook them, of course. You can use regular flour or buckwheat flour if you specifically want galettes, which are savory crepes. Galettes are a bit trickier to make than crepes because buckwheat flour is gluten-free, so the batter is a bit more temperamental when it comes to cooking it. You can cook them in a crepe pan called crepière, but a regular frying pan will absolutely work. Restaurants and street vendors use a special crepe cooker, which is basically a large metal disc. Once the pan has reached the optimal temperature, crepes cook quite fast, a couple of minutes on each side, because they're so thin. You can eat them hot or at room temperature, as a snack, a main dish, or a dessert. See how versatile that thing is? Now, once your crepes are ready, what do you put on them? Well, the list is endless, really. In crepes restaurants, you get at least a dozen choices for both galettes and crepes. 
Various cheeses, vegetables, and meat combinations make it super difficult to decide. Personally, my preference goes to the simpler choices like Swiss cheese with tomatoes. Although sometimes I do enjoy the goat cheese, walnut, and honey combination. And if I want to go fancy, the smoked salmon, crème fraîche, and chayef galette is the winner for me. What about you? What do you like on your savory crepes? Now, when it comes to dessert crepes, that's way trickier for me. There are so many enticing options. Butter and sugar, various jams, chocolate, of course, salted caramel, crème de marron. That's a sweet chestnut spread, so delicious. The list goes on and on. I always get stuck there. Let me know your favorite toppings. Traditionally, French people cook crepes, waffles, or beignets on Mardi Gras, that's Fat Tuesday, which is the eve of Ash Wednesday, when the traditional period of Easter starts in the Christian religion. Personally, I can eat them any day of the week. Well, that's my take on crepes for now. I'd love to know what your crepes experience is. Do you like them? Do you make them? Tell me. The last thing I want to touch on today is gratitude. I became aware of the concept when I celebrated my first Thanksgiving with my ex-husband's family in 1995. I don't think I'd even heard the word gratitude before that. It's a concept that was totally foreign to me growing up in France. But a whole dinner celebration about giving thanks? Well, I thought that was pretty cool. Shortly after that first Thanksgiving dinner, I learned about the actual history and, well, that kind of ruined the whole thing for a while. But we won't go there today. In any case, over the years, I read quite a few articles and books where gratitude would come up again and again. I learned that apparently being grateful helps you to be happier. Well, I'm all for that. So fast forward to the end of summer 2010. I'm standing in my kitchen in the sunset in San Francisco and my landlady slash roommate is talking with her sister about their Thanksgiving plans. And right then and there, I have a flash of inspiration. I'm going to make a list of 365 things I'm grateful for. That's going to be my Thanksgiving project. To give you a bit of context, me being in this kitchen at this time, it's a bit of a dawn of a new era situation. In the previous three years, I had experienced some of the worst moments of my life. My marriage disintegrated and we got a divorce, totally my fault. I got hepatitis A eating out somewhere, karma I'm sure. Both of my dearly beloved dogs died, Zoe of cancer and Buzz of heart failure six months later. And then I lost my townhouse because of the whole subprime situation compounded by the fact that I was paying the mortgages and the HOAs by myself, as well as the skyrocketing vet bills. By the way, you know how they charge according to your dog's weight? Well, I had two Rhodesian Ridgebacks. You do the math. Thankfully, I had a very good job at the time, but it just wasn't enough. That's when I decided it was time to hit the road. My friends helped me pack a moving truck, and I drove up the 5 all the way to San Francisco. And that's how I ended up in that kitchen, thinking about gratitude. It's been 11 years since then, and it's time to start sharing what I've been thinking. So that's what I'll do here. I do hope it sparks a conversation between us. Perhaps you can tell me what you're grateful for sometime. 
I'd love to know. Well, that's all I have for you today. Thank you for choosing to spend some time here with me. Maybe you learned something new. Maybe all that I shared made you think about your life a bit differently. Whatever the case may be, I hope you had a nice time. I look forward to talking to you soon. Until then, take good care of yourself. Au revoir.